You are listening to Isles and Insurrections. Your guide to Bryn's rebellions and civil wars. With your host, Declan Pollard. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for tuning in to the inaugural episode of Isles and Insurrections. I'm Declan Pollard a first-year history student at the University College London, and your host for the upcoming episodes, and hopefully seasons, where we will be taking a look at the British Isles and their historical penchant for outstanding rebellions and civil wars. This season, we are examining the English Civil Wars, or, as they are otherwise called, the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, which took place from 1642 to 1651. Each episode will be focusing on a specific war, for example, the First English Civil War, and the last episode of the season will encompass the significance of this time period and how it has influenced the United Kingdom as we know it today. Now this first background episode is crucial to the entire season. Aside from being an exciting era full of intrigue, mystery, and drama, The wars are a bit of a complicated mess. I say a bit of a complicated mess when I should say downright impressive in their complexity. The reason stems partly behind the great many actors that are involved. You first have entire nations such as Scotland, Ireland, and England. I apologize to any Welsh listeners I may have for the unfortunate absence of their country. All these nations have their own agendas, strengths, and weaknesses. Then you have individual characters, such as Charles I, his son Charles II, Cromwell, General Fairfax, General Manchester, Cromwell's son Richard, Mary Queen of Scots, and many, many more. With so many actors to keep track of throughout this long story, it can get very, very hectic. But any and every story has characters. This period is truly a doozy because of religion. We really only deal with one religion in this tale, that being Christianity, but the complexity comes from the sheer amount of religious factions that are involved, and remembering who subscribes to what sect, and how this motivates their actions. To fully understand the English Civil Wars, we have to have a good grounding in the history before the conflict, and we have to get a feel for what it led to its initial outbreak. This is critical. Knowing the terms used is also very important. So, I'll try my best to give you the exposition to this tale that I wish I had when I began to learn it. I'll first explain the differences between the religious sects that are involved, and then we'll go nation by nation, starting with England, then Scotland, and then Ireland and explain how they got to be where they were by the year 1625, the year when Charles I ascended to the throne. So, without further waffling on my part, let's begin. Protestantism One of the big religious granddaddies in this story, founded by that famous monk, Martin Luther, in 1517, when he published his 95 Theses, lamenting what he thought were inherent problems with the Catholic Church. Protestant beliefs conflict with Catholic beliefs, 
First and foremost, Protestants do not acknowledge the Pope as God's representative on earth. They also believe that all Christians have a personal relationship with God through prayer and do not need anyone in between, for example, a priest. Protestants also do not believe in eating bread and drinking wine during services as the figurative flesh and blood of Christ, also called transubstantiation. An important point to note, Henry VIII brought the previously Catholic nation of England under Protestantism in 1532 when he renounced the Pope and established the Church of England, or the Anglican Church, with the monarch as head, determining religious doctrine. Anglicanism A subset of Protestantism For the sake of our story, there isn't much to say on Anglicanism that's different from Protestantism. But it is important to remember that Anglicans are adherents to the Protestant Church of England. For simplicity's sake, I'll be referring to Anglicans as Protestants during these episodes, and the Anglican Church as the Church of England. Puritanism Another subsect of Protestantism, Puritans gained their name from their mission to purify the Church of England. This movement maintained that England had only been partially reformed when Henry VIII formed the Church of England, and that in the Church still lurked Catholics and Catholic influences. They desired to purge the institution of these Catholic remnants and cried for purity during services. Also sometimes called separatists, Puritans are largely famous because some went off to the New World as their practices were not looked upon favorably in England. Presbyterianism Once again, another subset of Protestantism. In our story, we don't have to go into detail about Presbyterianism. Just know that as Protestants, they differ from Protestantism only in the way that their church is governed. Presbyterian churches are locally governed by a council of elected elders. Local churches are governed by another council of elders that join together with other councils from different regions to form a national assembly. Catholicism A big religious group in our story, and one that came into fierce conflict with Protestantism. Unlike Protestants, Catholics believe in the Pope's divine appointment as God's representative on earth and acknowledge him as the head of the church. Catholics also eat bread and drink wine during services as the figurative flesh and blood of Christ. Before Protestantism was founded, Catholicism was the dominant branch of Christianity in Europe and the Pope held huge amounts of political sway. In fact, it was a political dispute that resulted in Henry VIII's break with the Pope. The pontiff refused to grant an annulment to Henry so that he could divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon, in favor of Anne Boleyn. Henry decided to break his alignment with the Catholic Church so that he could grant himself an annulment. Right, now that we have that out of the way, let's move on to our three nations, the first of which is England. At the year 1625, England had some absolutely blistering religious strife going on. Let's get into it. The trouble here stemmed from around a century earlier to Henry VIII's all-important decision to break with the Catholic Church and found the Church of England in 1532. 
Henry appointed himself as the head of his new church, but this set a dangerous precedent. Each successive monarch was now also the head of the church and had the ability to change religious doctrine how they pleased, even if it was on a whim. The result was that the state religion was in constant flux. In fact, up until James I ascended to the throne in 1603, the country had been under an Anglican in Henry, a Catholic in Mary I, and a Puritan in Elizabeth I. And we can even throw a Calvinist in there as well in Edward VI, however short his reign was, but that would border on beating a dead horse. Even though these religious schisms may not seem so stark, indeed they are all Christian. The separations between doctrines created instability, as specific sects were favored for some years and then were persecuted the next. When James I began his reign in 1603, he perhaps realized the precarious religious state England was in and decided on a path of a slight religious tolerance. He tried to include as many factions in the Church of England as possible, throwing in all manner of Protestants as if he was trying to make a meal of last night's leftovers. He stated that he would not enforce the Peel Codes passed by Parliament that specifically persecuted Catholics, famously saying that he would, quote, neither persecute any that will be quiet and give but an outward obedience to the law, unquote. However, some Catholics hoped for more than just mere toleration from James I. See, James's mother was Mary, Queen of Scots, who was a Catholic martyr. We'll go into Mary's story later in the Scotland portion of this episode, but because of James's parentage, some Catholics thought that he may attempt to return England to Catholicism. And boy, were they sure disappointed when they realized that James was not going to reunite with the Pope. Angered by this discovery that only time could tell, some Catholic extremists hatched a conspiracy to assassinate James and all of Parliament in the House of Lords as the King opened Parliament in 1605 in what is now known as the Gunpowder Plot. Piecemeal, explosives were smuggled into the basement of Parliament in preparation for the 5th of November opening. However, an anonymous letter tipped off the authorities before the plan could come to fruition. On the night before the opening in the House of Lords, a search was conducted on the basement below the hall, and Guy Fawkes was found guarding 36 barrels of gunpowder, enough to reduce the hall to ash. Fox was then tortured, eventually giving up the names of those he conspired with. All were sentenced to the traitor's death. They were hung, drawn, and then quartered. There are pieces sent throughout England. So, if you've ever wondered why children in Britain run around with alarming quantities of explosives on the 5th of November, the gunpowder plot is why. The real significance of the gunpowder plot came immediately after it was foiled. The public was outraged that these Catholic dissidents would dare attempt to murder their king and parliament. Anti-Catholic sentiment was severely inflamed, and there were renewed calls for James to enforce the Peel Codes that persecuted Catholics. In addition, this agitated hate for Catholicism brought about calls from people and parliament for James and successive kings to champion Protestant causes abroad. The gunpowder plot noticeably grew the ranks of the burgeoning Puritan movement as people became eager to rid the Church of England of any and all Catholic influences. Those perceived by Puritans to harbor sympathy for Catholics were also targeted, and this would oftentimes turn them against other members of the Church of England. 
So, what a mess, huh? By the time Charles I became monarch in 1625, England was a religiously fractured nation. Decades of religious flux under Henry VIII's successors had produced a nation whose populace was a hodgepodge of Anglicans, Puritans, and Catholics. And in the years before 1625, the Anglicans and Puritans were persecuting the Catholics in force, while at the same time, the Puritans were purging the Church of England not only of Catholics, but of Anglicans they found lacking in commitment to Protestantism. England was fraught with theological strife. Now, on to our second nation, Scotland. So, if you thought England was cranky due to its inherent religious differences, you'll be stunned by the discord that preceded 1625 in Scotland. Not only were there several debilitating religious conflicts, but Scotland was plagued with severe political instability from the early 1500s, around a century before Charles I ascended to the throne. Scotland, at this time, was a separate nation altogether from England, with its own individual monarch, government, and religion. Indeed, the country was piously Catholic when Henry VIII to the south broke with the Catholic Church in 1532 and made England Protestant under his new church. At the time, James V led an extremely opulent court lifestyle. His extravagance, however, came at a cost, and he was rapidly draining the government coffers. To get a bit more spending money, James V cunningly entertained some Protestant beliefs from newly reformed England, which frightened the Pope. The Vatican, fearing that another country may fall to Protestantism, granted James V a tax break to convince him to remain with Catholicism. But this flirtation with Protestantism was not without cost. James V's actions shifted the state religion into somewhat of a gray area, where Protestantism was tolerated, but Catholicism was the state religion. This led to a small fracture in national belief, as a minority of Scots began to practice Protestantism. This delicate balancing act between the two sects was upset when James V died in 1542, leaving the infant Mary, Queen of Scots, as monarch. Scotland was soon thrust into chaos, as Protestant England and Catholic France two dominant powers fighting for religious and military hegemony, vied for the Scottish throne by trying to marry one of their countrymen to the infant Scottish queen in what became known as the Rough Wooing. Henry VIII, then monarch of England, attempted to force the Scottish government into accepting their offer of marriage by repeatedly invading Scotland. France, in turn, provided the Scots with arms and supplies to defend themselves against England's incursions. In the end, and after some scuffles between France and England on the continent, the Scots, well, really more like the French, saw victory against the English in 1546, and Scotland returned to staunch Catholicism. Protestants were no longer afforded the same tolerance they enjoyed under James V, and most fled Scotland for fear of being outed in a Protestant witch hunt. Scotland saw peace until 1558, when Mary, Queen of Scots, married Francis II, heir to the French throne, and went off to join her husband in France. However, their marriage proved a difficult pill for the Scottish to swallow. A secret clause in the marriage contract all but handed control of Scotland to the French. 
but this clause was a badly kept secret and became common knowledge. The Scots were faced with a decision, hand over their sovereignty to a foreign French monarch or scorn the ally that helped them resist Henry VIII's advances during the rough wooing and take their chances against their enemy, England. The Scottish Protestants that remained were in an especially precarious situation at this point. Hemmed in by Catholic England under Mary I on their southern border, and an ever-encroaching Catholic France, just a short time away from assuming full control over Scotland, Scottish Protestants were truly stuck between a rock and a hard place in 1558. However, all was not lost for the fledgling Scottish Protestants as later that same year, the Protestant Elizabeth I ascended to the throne, giving them newfound confidence. Although Protestants only made up a small minority of the Scottish population, there were several high-ranking Protestant noblemen, known as the Lords of the Congregation, with significant influence. Spurred on by Elizabeth's ascension in England, they began a Protestant insurrection in Scotland, beginning the Scottish Reformation. Soon afterwards, a mob swept through the city of St. Andrews, the seat of the Scottish Catholic Church, and ravaged the cathedrals, smashing Catholic symbols and whitewashing church walls in a flurry of iconoclasm. The movement then deftly used the printing press to legitimize the insurrection, stating that it was less about instating Protestantism and more about throwing off the shackles of impending French rule. By 1560, all the nobility supported the insurrection, and a new provisional government was formed. It formally rejected any relationship with the Pope, and Scotland became a Protestant nation. However, an end to the chaos that had engulfed Scotland since James V's death was still far off. In 1561, Mary, Queen of Scots, arrived on Scottish shores from France. Her husband, King Francis II of France, died prematurely at 16, and Mary had decided to return home. As the legitimate ruler of Scotland, the Queen was more or less welcomed by the provisional government. When in power, Mary tolerated the new Protestant Scottish Church, but the Church itself was less than happy to be under a Catholic monarch. The Church then fractured over the contentious issue of Mary's private Catholic masses, pitting centrist Protestants against conservative Protestants. The Queen tried to hold these conflicting sides of the Church together and indeed society, through tolerance. Her plan was to wait out this still ongoing Scottish Reformation, and things were going well for Mary until her new husband, father to the aforementioned James I, was murdered. Things began to fall apart when Mary remarried to the Earl of Bothwell, one of the suspected conspirators in her late husband's death. Bothwell had no shortage of enemies in the Scottish nobility, and most wanted to see him gone. Finally, in 1567, the nobles rose up against Mary and imprisoned her to negate Bothwell's influence. A month and a half later, the conservative faction in the church saw an opportunity to rid themselves of this Catholic monarch. They staged a second coup, and Mary was forced to abdicate in favor of her son, the infant James VI, who would later become England's James I. Mary's forces, however, still sought to fight against the Protestant conservatives, and so what ensued was six years of civil war, which ended in Mary's execution in England and a conservative Protestant victory in 1573. The Scottish population, weary from decades of tumult, was not immediately fond of the new regime. To combat this, 
the new government asked George Buchanan, a famed scholar, to persuade the populace of its legitimacy. The argument Buchanan made in convincing the Scottish population of the new regime's right to rule in his several books is a significant one, and one that echoes Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan that will be published around a century later. Buchanan asserted that since the Gaelic kings of Scotland were selected via election and not by divine appointment, Scottish monarchs had a contract with the people they governed and were therefore not above the laws of the land. If the monarch breached their contract with the people, law dictated that the populace could take action against the monarch like any other individual that scorned a legally binding agreement, thus justifying Mary's forced abdication. This was a rather groundbreaking assertion on Buchanan's part. At least in the British Isles, it was always thought that the king or queen had a sort of divine legitimacy. The notion that monarchical legitimacy derived from the people and therefore the monarch could be subject to laws passed by parliament meant that the monarch could also be persecuted for breaking those laws, something almost unthinkable at the time. Indeed, Buchanan's writings suggesting parliamentary supremacy would eventually be seen as foreshadowing a greater conflict in the coming years. Coming back to our story, Buchanan was also asked to tutor the boy monarch, James VI, so that the young king would grow up to obey the populace, really the nobility he supposedly had a contract with. Despite Buchanan's best efforts, James scorned the idea that his kingship was subject to Scottish law and instead believed that his rule was absolute over Scotland and could only be nullified by God himself. James also saw himself as a godly king and endeavored to control the Scottish Protestant church. To do this, he introduced the Episcopacy, where the church was controlled by bishops that he appointed. With the church firmly under James's control, the young king popularized private Bibles, founded the University of Edinburgh to train ministers, and instructed the church to publish popular Protestant ballads, all helping to make Scotland a piously Protestant nation. When Elizabeth I of England died without an heir in 1603, the English throne passed to James VI, bringing England and Scotland into union for the first time. The nobility was elated at first. They believed that they would be awarded titles and lands by a new English monarch. These expectations never came to fruition. Instead, James moved south to England, taking his court with him, and Scotland became a backwater. It was then up to a disgruntled and forgotten Scottish Protestant church and nobility to shape their nation. Further adding to their disgruntlement was James's spoken belief that he expected Scotland to assimilate and become more English. After centuries of fighting with England, this was not something the fiercely proud Scottish wanted to hear. Right, so that was an absolute ton of Scottish history. But I think it is important to at least have somewhat of a grounding in it to understand the mood and belief system in Scotland at the start of the War of the Three Kingdoms. To amalgamate it altogether, Scotland in the year 1625 was a strongly Protestant nation, but also an unhappy country. Torn apart by a century of war and political chaos, Scotland's supposed savior, James VI, had abandoned the country for London and marginalized Scotland just when the country was getting back on its feet. The nobility became no friend of the new monarch, nor indeed any subsequent English-Scottish king. And finally, we come to Ireland. There's a great quote from the American TV show, The West Wing, about the historical relationship between Ireland and England. Lord John Marbury, 
DK ambassador to the United States, declares, quote, For Americans, it's slavery. Slavery is your original sin. That and your unfortunate history with your aborigines. For the English, it's Ireland, unquote. Whether you agree with the character's assertions or not, we'll see here that there is a certain truth to his statement. In the 1400s, Ireland was a lordship of the English monarch, but English control over the island was not centralized and largely not exercised. The Hundred Years' War and the War of the Roses during this century had thrust the English monarchy into turmoil, and dominion over Ireland took a backseat to survival for many kings. This resulted in a devolvement of governance to the leading Fitzgerald family of Kildare. However, the alliance between the Fitzgeralds and the English monarchy was strained. The Fitzgeralds perceived political weakness in England during the aftermath of the wars, and the Reformation under Henry VIII in 1532 threatened Ireland, a fiercely Catholic nation. Tensions culminated in a 1535 rebellion during Henry VIII's rule, when Thomas Fitzgerald, de facto ruler of Ireland, seeking to rid himself of this Protestant lordship, renounced his alliance with the crown and took up arms. Henry quashed the rebellion fairly quickly and executed Thomas Fitzgerald, bringing a swift end to Fitzgerald family dominance in Ireland. Because of Ireland's proximity to England, Henry was motivated to secure the island once and for all. In 1542, Henry was crowned King of Ireland, bringing England and Ireland into personal union for the first time. He set about expanding English central control over the entire island. This, however, was easier said than done. It took close to a century of bloodshed and strife to reconquer Ireland. Irish lords were asked to surrender their lands to the crown so that those lands could be given back in a royal grant. If they refused to comply, force was used to bring them to submission. The reconquest was completed under the reign of Elizabeth, and central monarchical control was fully reinstated by 1607 under our friend James I, when the last full insurrection against the English took place. Even though Ireland and its lords were put firmly under England's thumb from 1542 to 1607, Protestantism never made traction in Ireland mainly because the savage reconquest severely inflamed anti-English sentiment. Among one of the most hated strategies used to accomplish this reconquest was the practice of forced plantation. From 1550 to 1600, many Irish Catholics in Munster and Ulster were booted off their lands to make way for Scottish and English Protestants, resulting in a European trail of tears as a native Irish traveled to other counties in harsh conditions with little food, seeking new and often much less fertile lands. Apart from forced plantation was also the enforcement of penal codes persecuting Irish Catholics for their faith, which certainly did not endear English rule to the native inhabitants. Despite differences between regions and classes in the native population, a shared enemy in the English and a common religion helped the Irish band together across factions, forming a significant block of dissenters in English-ruled Ireland. So, in 1625, Ireland was occupied by a native populace, united by Catholicism and by a resentment for English rule and religious persecution. This block was irate and belligerent in the face of what they saw as almost a century of brutal maltreatment of the Irish population by their English overlords. Many were looking for the right time to strike back, 
when England was weak and embroiled in another period of political instability. And so, that ends our first episode, Kingdoms Disgruntled. We have seen throughout the past 20 or so minutes that the three kingdoms that will later be involved in civil wars were deeply troubled at the outset of 1625 when Charles I ascended to the throne. England had profound religious problems stemming from an ever-shifting church doctrine and the gunpowder plot. Scotland was also similarly upset. The church and aristocracy were disgruntled at having been marginalized by a king they thought would serve them well and the country was adamantly against assimilating into English culture. And finally, the Irish population was heavily resentful towards English rule and were suffering under persecution for their Catholic faith. It is plain to see that when Charles I ascended to the throne in 1625, he presided over a powder keg. The next episode will hopefully be out Friday next week and will encompass the first English Civil War. Until then, goodbye.